All right, so we're going to be in Matthew 26, about verse 36 today. We're going to try to get all the way through verse 56. Um, this scene played out. Um, this is essentially we're within the, the 24-hour bubble. Actually, we're closer to the maybe 12 to 18-hour bubble of Jesus being hung on a cross. Uh, this scene that we're going to study this morning and look at is... Um, it's so familiar to us that it's easy to lose sight of what actually is historically taking place. There's a lot of really interesting context that's happening uh, in the span of this maybe two to three hour period. Uh, Jesus has left the, the upper room with the disciples. Uh, last week we talked about the four cups of Passover and how Jesus left the fourth cup and said, I will not drink of this cup. That's the cup of praise until I return. The third cup, which he says, take this, this is my blood, um, which Paul would say, do this in remembrance of me, right? He would spell that out more application-based. But that's the cup of redemption in the Passover and the meal. And Jesus is going to be talking about that particular meal, that particular cup all throughout this story. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Have you heard this phrase before, Garden of Gethsemane? You've heard that description? Does anybody know what Gethsemane uh, means? Oil press. It does. It means just that. It just means oil press. Um, there is a prize. It's a lifetime supply um, of bragging rights. All right. All right. So we're going to stop mirroring. We're going to start. I need to show you a picture. All right, so we see this picture. All right, uh, this is a very basic. Like think of um, think of old presses like F one fifties. There are seventy eight varieties from the work truck model up to the very top of the line. You know, platinum limited. You know, and there's lots of options in between. But they all have the basic four wheels and a steering wheel kind of situation. Uh, this would be a very simple old press. Um, and I just wanted to show it to you in terms of the mechanisms. The long uh, piece of wood, that would be a big lever. Um, what you see, kind of see, it looks like a spring, is actually made, it's baskets. Probably, probably hemp rope or something like that, some type of rope uh, made baskets. And they would grind up olives and uh, pulp and all, seed, pulp, everything. They would grind them up into this gooey paste, and then they would take them, and almost like stucco or mortar, just fling them into these baskets that look, you know, kind of like almost like a donut without a hole on one side, right? So it's, you put the stuff in and you pack it in. And, and they, that would be y'all's job. Today, y'all are just packing the baskets with, with the, the olive pulp. And, and then y'all's job is to carry the baskets over. And then they would press them, okay? And out of the pressing would come what? Olive oil. All right, this is just for fun. What does, what is Evo? And those of you who watch a lot of home cooking shows, Evo, what is Evo? Extra virgin, extra virgin olive oil. Why is it extra or virgin? It's the first, it's the first press. press. All right, go back before that. That's virgin olive oil is the first pressing. It is extra. <laughs> it's extra virgin. What makes, what makes virgin olive oil extra virgin olive It's, it is. It's what just kind of like comes out of the olive naturally. If you were just to stack a bunch of uh, uh, olives together, there would kind of coalesce at the bottom by its own weight. And it is by nature the most pure. Okay? So when you ladies uh, or gentlemen go to the store and buy some Evo, just know they're probably lying to you. There's, there's, they, I don't even know how they get that much, but there's, there's, they're lying. Uh, but it's supposed to be uh, like the oil without the pressing. Okay, So it's non-depressed oil. I don't know. I'm sure there's some essential oils people that would really hint on that. Um, so uh, let me see if I go to the next picture. All right, so that's kind of the pressing of it looks delightful now this was is more of a uh, a, a screw type this was probably a thousand years after the fact where they learned to kind of like just kind of turn the corkscrew down and they would 
you know, would bind the baskets. But you kind of can see how the oil uh, is running down, but there's kind of that gooey paste oozing through. Y'all see that? Okay. And it would run down. You see it on the right and left of those baskets, kind of those channels. The water would run, or the oil would run down. Uh, there's a basket. Okay. And you notice how flat they get when you press them, right? Uh, so they would just pack a whole lot of that olive uh, paste in there, and they would press it. Now, I'm going to linger on this one because this is interesting. Uh, how many weights do you see hanging there? Three. Okay. Now, at the end of our lesson today, I'll come back to this picture. But generally speaking, when you pressed olives, you pressed them three times. The first with one weight, the second with an additional weight, and the third pressing would get all three weights. So there would be a light pressing, a medium pressing, and then a heavy like, we're going to mash it. You know, we're going to really mash out the olive oil on that one. And we'll come back to that at the end. But olive press, the garden of the olive press. I've been telling you that Jesus, uh, as he's come to the Passover meal, he's leaving Jerusalem every night. He crosses the Kidron Valley, goes up the Mount of Olives, goes over the hill to Bethany and Bethpage, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. Well, uh, that is not untrue. They have been staying there. But somewhere in the transition between the cross and, and, uh, and the nights, Jesus and his disciples started staying here at night. And you say, well, how did you get there? Well, look at Luke real quick. Um, flip over to Luke. Luke loves details. Man, does he. Um, Luke chapter 21, verse 37 Somewhere uh, in the previous night or two, they've decided that being even two miles away from Jerusalem is not enough. And by they, I indicate to you, it was Jesus. Jesus is like, we got to stay close because this whole party is about to kick off. Verse 37, chapter 21 of Luke says, Now during the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at evening, Jesus would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. Now, let's talk about that real quick. What is the Mount of Olives? Anybody? Any takers? It's a mountainside full of olive trees. It's brilliant. Uh, gold star for the front lady in the front row. Uh, why is there a mountainside full of olives? Do, do, do olives grow naturally? Say yes. Yes. Um, do apples grow naturally? Yes. Do pecans? Yeah, but how do we harvest them typically now in our, our society in specific groves of apple or pecan or, in this case, olive trees? Um, when David began to set up his son Solomon to be king, he set a lot of, aside a lot of building materials, cedars from Lebanon to build the temple. He set aside and hired. He went ahead and signed the government contracts. Uh, for the masons and the lumb, uh, the uh, the carpenters and the goldsmiths and the ironsmiths and all the ones that were they were ready to go. So when Solomon said, "Let's build a temple," they were all the government contracts were already established. All we had to do was execute the funds and execute the the building project. Well, um, what was the temple's purpose, generally speaking? Someone not on the front row. It was, yes, the temple was designed for the people of Israel to worship who? God. God, yes, the God of Israel. Thank you. You got to stay with me here. Loosen up. I'm the one doing the teaching. Just loosen up, relax. Um, so, what? What are some of the things that are within the temple um, that that went on daily that you can recall? Talk to me. Y'all have been to Sunday school before? Is this, y'all have been to church before? Just, do what? There was prayer, okay. That's very clear, yes. What else? What are some of the practices that took place? Sacrifice. Sacrifices. Sacrifices. What were being sacrificed? Animals. Animals were being sacrificed, specifically lambs, maybe a young goat, uh, turtle doves, uh, or pigeons if you were poor. Uh, but generally speaking, those were the type. Uh, what about a bull or a young bull? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, what else would they bring? What, if you remember your Old Testament at all, what else are some things that you could bring to the temple as an offering? You could bring grain. You could bring flour that was finely, finely sifted, uh, the top of the line, self-rising flour. I don't know if that's it. But you could also bring olive oil. Now, uh, the temple is, for lack of a better term, a, a corporation of effort, okay? It's one thing to have a small family where we're going to light a candle or light an oil lamp, but it's altogether different if we're at the temple because the temple has to be sourced 24-7 with olive oil because we have lamps, specifically the lamps in the holy place, that have to be burning constantly. Um, now, what when you, when you light a candle, those of you ladies who shop at Target or Cracker Barrel, um, what happens when, uh, when, you, when you light a candle? What, what, what is the byproduct of a candle? Smoke. smoke. Okay. Now, are there smokeless candles? It's not been invented yet. Did you know that there are, there's, there are oils that have a lower smoking point than others? Gentlemen, did you all know that? When you fry up your annual turkey, what kind of oil do you use? You use peanut oil. Why? Because it's delicious. No, because do what? It has a high smoking point. Now, what does that mean for the uh, uninformed? It means that it won't start smoking till a much higher temperature. Okay. All right. So it, we don't want to just throw vegetable oil because it's going to get real, real hot, and it'll be smoke everywhere. So we're going to use peanut oil so there won't be as much smoke. Olive oil, depending on what level that you you use it in, puts off different levels of smoke. If you use virgin olive oil, that is to say the first pressing, it gives off almost no smoke, which is very important if you have a, a room that is covered in precious metals, specifically gold, and you're burning those, those oil lamps 24-7. So you need a very, very clean, very, I'm going to use this in a metaphorical sense, pure burning oil. And everything in the temple was designed to demonstrate in an earthly way God's holiness and purity. You follow me? So when Solomon is building the temple and realizes we're going to have to burn all this, these candles for so long, they go out and pick up the best oil they can, and they're constantly trucking it in. Those of you in the service industry uh, that, that are all about logistics, you know the difficulty of getting stuff from here to there. Solomon's like, we gotta, we got to shorten the distance between where the product is and where the product will be used. So he built a, an olive grove on the side of a mountain outside of Jerusalem. And that's where the Mount of Olives is. And since we're already over here with this olive group, uh, this olive grove, why not go ahead and start doing what? Putting in these presses. So I'm guaranteeing you the press that we find, you know, here that Jesus says isn't the only one on the mountain, okay? But it's one that Jesus has found to be quiet and private, and as he travels back and forth into Jerusalem, it's kind of a quiet hole to hide in when you need to be alone. Those of you who travel a lot by air and you have to go through particular airports, tell me you haven't found a hidey hole somewhere where not a lot of people are and you go and wait between your flights because you're, like, you're done peopling. Jesus had done this. Jesus had done this. And that is called the Garden of Gethsemane. All right. Y'all with me? Come back. Jesus came with them to a place, verse 36, called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. This is what you tell your children, by the way. You sit down. I'm going to go over here. You sit here. What do you want us to do, Dad? Pray. Play the quiet game, right? You're going to pray. I'm going to go over there and pray. And Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Interesting, they're not named. Who are they? James and John. James and, John. and he began, Jesus began to be grieved and distressed. This cannot be uh, understated here, to be grieved and distressed. Jesus goes into an emotional place internally that is amply clear on his face. He is hurt. 
He is deeply grieved. Uh, what is going on inside of his chest cannot be hidden to those around him. And he steps away, and in my mind, and, and I, I, forgive me if I seem to be running at your, your, uh, your mental vision of who Jesus is, um, he is not a static, callous human being. He has the full range of emotions. Just days before, he's, he's in absolute anger flipping over tables. Two days prior, he's got, got his finger right in the nose of the Pharisees yelling at them on the Temple Mount. Jesus is full, full, full of the range of emotion. And he just left, uh, he just left a room with his, at least the 12 disciples. And of those, of those 12, what did one of them do? Judas. What did Judas do? He left, and Jesus knows what he's about to do. So his, if we can call them, 12 of his best friends and he knows what one of them is actively doing, and he knows what he's about to go through on the cross. Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundations of the world, you and I were chosen in Christ. Well, how are we chosen? We were chosen by what Jesus was going to do on the cross. Jesus was within a 12 to 18-hour bubble of that process kicking off, and he knows it, and he is grieved, and uh, ladies, if I said the term ugly cry, would you, would you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you men may have had the ugly cry once or twice in your life. I can go to a handful of times where all of life, like you bind, you bind it up, and then you go find a quiet place where no one can look, and you just kind of heave over at the chest uh, or at the, at the waist, and you just let it all out, right? Whether it's got to do with an ailment from your spouse or an ailment from your kids or your parents, or whatever it may be, and you just let it go. Jesus is at that stage where that ugly cry is, is about to just leap out of his face. He is so in agony over what he knows is coming. That is not to say he doubts at all God's plan. That is not to say he is unwilling. It is to say he is completely human, and he is feeling all the feels of knowing that this pain is coming. It's coming. Verse 38, he even says it. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Um, I, I can't speak for everyone because everyone's a little different. But one of the things that I treasure the most in my personal relationships is loyalty. Okay? And by that I mean, um, Brady, if, if me and you were, we were just best bros and someone came to me and says, Brady's just a real jerk. I don't like him at all. He's a terrible human being. Um, I would consider it a disloyalty to you to just kind of sit there and take that. Even if they were right? I, yes, even, even if they were right. Because you're not going to come at my friend like that. I'm going, I'm going to defend you, right? And, and so if I heard that someone like, you know, like ramped up on me, and like, I, look, I, people talk about people all the time. Uh, if you're... If, you're, if you lean forward and you speak out anything in this world, there are going to be people who say, I have a different opinion just because they want to, right? Uh, but if someone who I consider closest to me, right, doesn't defend me and doesn't stand next to me in my worst moment, uh, I, I, I struggle with that, okay? So there, I've shown you the vulnerability. This is what I think, this is my bias coming to the text, I recognize that, but this is what I think Jesus is doing. He's pulled aside the 12, and then he's pulled three. And he says, I am going through the hardest moments of my earthly life to this point. I need, I need some real bros to step in here and, and help, me, help me pray and carry this load. Will you do it? Can you can y'all see that? All right, am I misreading that? Okay. So he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And Jesus went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face. Now, I, I want to tell you something. This is a, an interesting piece of Scripture here because the Jews prayed like this. They would stand, and they would face heaven, and they would open their hands, expecting to receive something from the Father, uh, the God that they were praying to. Uh, the only time I really see in Scripture where people 
have their face down before God in prayer is when Jesus is talking about a tax collector, right? And he says, the Pharisee stood at the corner and held his, thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a dog, or a woman, right? Uh, thank you that I have done all these great things. But the tax collector is there huddling, broken. We see this in Hannah in the Old Testament. She's laying on the steps of the tabernacle, uh, mouthing her prayer to the point where the, the high priest thinks she's drunk. Like, their brokenness. And Jesus goes on, and he falls on his face. That's how grieved he is. He's just laying there in the dust and the dirt, heartbroken and grieved and emotionally distraught. And he went a little beyond them, and he says, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, we live in a day where uh, y'all have the Insta spams and the Facebook you know, reels and the, all the little videos. Have you ever seen something really like, hey, good morning. How, have you seen a video so like funny? You're like, oh, how'd they catch that on camera? And then you realize, well, of course they didn't catch that on camera, right? It's made to look like this was a spontaneous, good morning, a spontaneous action. We're in Matthew 26, verse 38, 39. Um, uh, it, was, it was all a setup. That's why it's on camera, right? How do we get this moment if... Peter, James, and John are all asleep. You put on your logical brain. If Peter, James, and John are all asleep, how do we get this? How do we get this uh, message? Okay, potentially someone else saw it. I tend to think either John recorded this in his memory banks before he fell off asleep, or there's a little boy hiding in the thickets by the name of Mark which we'll talk about that maybe at a little time, a little different time. Uh, a little boy followed this entourage, actually followed Jesus after he was arrested. Mark, The Gospel of Mark says that a Roman soldier saw the little kid and snatched him, and the kid was whoop, and ran right out of his clothes and ran home. Uh, what, there's only one reason why a kid would be out in his PJs at this time, knowing exactly where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a little boy who lived in the upper room. Mark's mother own the upper room okay so that's that so that that's a lot of dots to connect i don't have time to connect them all this morning but we're still doing it here oh man here i'm going to give you the phone would you just keep connecting it as it as it disconnects uh so one of two things happened either mark witnessed this as a little boy and recounted it to some of the disciples or i think maybe perhaps john heard this and this is more my opinion uh, that John heard this before he fell off asleep. Now let's keep in mind, they got a full belly. They just walked up a hill and they got at least three cups of wine in them from the Lord's Supper they just had, okay? Now I'm not a drinker, but those of you who do, uh, y'all just tell me how you feel after three cups of wine, right? Uh, so there, there, there's been a lot of activity going on today. It's been a big party and they're tired and, uh, and Jesus is asking them for their last measure of energy. And verse 39 says, and he went a little beyond, he says, my father, if it's possible at this cup, that is this cup of redemption, this cup of wrath that God is going to have to pay to get us out. Uh, if there's any other way, but not my will, let it be yours. And he came to the disciples in verse 40, and he found them sleeping. And he said to, to Peter, is that what your Bible says? He said to Peter, why? <laughs> um, so someone had to hear Jesus talk to Peter, right? Uh, who's there? Peter, James, and John, right? And so I'm going to guess John, uh, though dozing, was I think he was probably a little bit in the game, um, but he's kind of was getting parts of it. And so he says to Peter, uh, and he found them sleeping, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? I think there's hurt here, right? Like, come on, guys. You see, I'm right over there. You see me grieving. Can you just hang with me a little bit? All right? And they tried. They tried. God help them, they tried. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is a weakness of human flesh. This is a weakness of knowing what's coming. By the way, this, this should be a huge evidence uh, clue into us. They didn't know the cross was, was imminent. Right? Because if you guys knew, and y'all might not even like me, but if you knew that someone was fixing to enter in this room 
to take me away and kill me, I would hope that you guys would at least stay awake enough to watch the show. Okay? Maybe even stand up and say, hey, what? no, no, not going to do that. They didn't know. They didn't know. They saw Jesus grieving, but they didn't understand it. They were physically, mentally, and emotionally drained, and they didn't have all the buy-in that Jesus did in this moment. Uh, verse 40, and he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. He said, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what's the temptation? What has Jesus been warning his disciples that they're going to do? In, they're going, yeah, they're going to leave. They're going to leave. And what has Peter and all the apostles said to this point? No, absolutely not. And Jesus is saying, you need to stay awake, not just for my sake, not just for my help. You need to pray that God strengthens your heart and that when the temptation to run comes, you don't. But they couldn't. They couldn't. Verse uh, 41 or 42, he went away again a second time and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, again, it's that cup of wrath for our cup of redemption. Um, if it cannot pass away, uh, your will be done. And he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Again, gosh, we can't. I'm just we're very guarded on throwing rocks at these disciples because I know where I'd be, right? Uh, it's hard. It's difficult to stay in the game, especially when you don't fully understand uh, the consequences that are, that are coming. Uh, fathers, especially fathers, man, raise up your babies knowing they're going to get it wrong a lot, and sometimes their will is just tired, right? And just, it's all right, come on, stay at it. Let's, let's keep moving. Uh, Verse 44, he left them again for the third time, and he went away and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. I think John heard the prayer, and as, as John, like John's doing, you know, like, here, what some of y'all do during sermons, right? He's like, right, we're here, we're paying attention, Lord, and then out, right? And he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now from the Mount of Olives, where we're sitting, it, you can look down the hill, and it is only about 300 yards from the, the gate of, of Jerusalem to where they're coming out of to where Jesus is sitting. It's the middle of the night. They have torches and lamps and lanterns. They're carrying she, uh, swords. The Roman soldiers are carrying swords. Uh, the Hebrew or the Israelite guards are carrying clubs. It was illegal for them to carry uh, the swords in Jerusalem. So especially on the Temple Mount, they carried clubs. So when you read the text and it says they brought uh, she, uh, swords and clubs, it's an indication there were Romans and, uh, and Israelite uh, temple guards in that company together. And so you can see him coming. Jesus could see him coming. And he said, all right, guys, wake up. They're... Everything I've told you, it's kickoff. It's happening. So I need you to wake up. Now, uh, I encourage you to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the events of, of, of this night. Every single one of them varies a little bit. And I think it's actually a beautiful mosaic. It's not inconsistent in the way, well, they say different things. It's different in the way that a mosaic is unique until you draw back and it's the same picture, right? Um, Matthew is going to describe what he sees. Mark, uh, through the words and eyes of Peter, describes what he sees. Luke, through the testimony of perhaps all the, all the 11 that survived, or he's going to piece together a version. And then John, in his perhaps late 80s, early 90s, when he wrote his Gospel of John as an old man, remembering when he was perhaps in his teens or 20s, you follow me? He's going to be writing the memories of an old man. So they're all a little different, and, uh, and they're all a little nuanced, and they all have little different subtleties. And it's just a beautiful, again, it's a beautiful mosaic of what Jesus is presenting to us here. 
Um, but verse 47 says this. While Jesus was still speaking, that is to say, it happened quickly, right? So he sees them coming. He's coaching them. I mean, what would you be doing if you knew you had 10 minutes left with your kids for the rest of their existence? You'd hug them, and you'd, you'd, you'd try to instill as much wisdom in as you could, right? And Jesus is hammering it in, right? He's, so he's, he's just pumping them full of, of knowledge and just trying to, hey, this is what happened, and this is what's going to happen, and I love you, and they're going to take me, and this is what's going to happen. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, uh, accompanied by, large, by a large crowd with swords and clubs, Romans and Jewish guards from the Temple Mount area who came from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying Jesus gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately, now by the way, uh, where do we get that information? Verse 48, where do we get that information? Did Judas uh, sit down with the interview with Matthew? Where, do, where, do, where, do we, where would we get that? That's, that's outside details. Whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. Who would have heard that message from Judas? Come on, y'all watch enough true crime. Let's go. The priests and the, I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Pharisees, the priests, uh, the Roman soldiers, and the, the, the Hebrew guards there at the Temple Mount. They would have heard this briefing by Judas. Hey, we're going to go in. Some of them may be hostile, right? Uh, just be ready. That's why they brought swords and clubs. They, you need to be ready for the hostility. And uh, well, how will we know? It's the middle of the flipping night. Uh, and they're all Jews, <laughs> right? They're all bald men with beards, right? Uh, you know, if, you know, go into the church, look for a bald man with a beard. Dead gummit. Um <laughs> You know, it's a game of guess who. And they're like, well, how will we know which one to arrest? And Judas says, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll greet him. Uh, in, in, uh, in Matthew, it just says, it says, hail rabbi. Read another gospel, it just says, rabbi, sup, like something like that. Um, in the other two gospels, it says something different, like there's more to it. We probably get this information in verse 48 from an outside source, not one of the disciples. But one of the people who later converted, most likely, to Christianity, and Matthew is hearing their side of the story. Now, some of y'all may know my story. When I was nine, my father was shot in front of me, right? He survived it, took a 45 bullet to the head. We can talk about that later. Uh, I was preaching a couple, years ago, a couple weeks ago at the church at Shiloh in Pelahatchee, and uh, I just briefly used that part of that story because it happened over in the Pisgah, Sand Hill, you know, Pelahatchee community. I was going to East Drankin School at that time, and I was just kind of using it as a way of connecting that, the drama of that time of my life. And after, after I preached, an, uh, a lady approached me in her mid-late 60s, and she said, I remember that. My daughter spent the night with your sister the night before. I didn't remember that. And I got to thinking, like, as a mom, how do you process that? Your daughter was at the house of a man who was shot in an attempted murder the next day. How does that make y'all feel? And I was trying to, like, whoo, put myself. It was very eye-opening. Even though I was the one that experienced the trauma, she wasn't even there, but, like, she had a part of the story I didn't have. And someone came to Matthew and said, you know what? I've got a part of the story that you don't have. Let me tell you what happened behind the scenes. So that's verse 48. Whomever I kiss, he is the one season. Now immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, teacher, hail, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to Judas, Friend, do what you've come for. And they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Now, anybody see something missing in the way Matthew recounts this story? What, do you, what, what, what pops to your mind when, you, when, when Judas kisses Jesus? Do y'all have any other details that y'all think y'all know that comes from a different gospel? Jesus actually looks at Judas, and he goes, oh, Judas. What did he say? You remember? 
Remember? With a kiss? Does that... Yep, no? Yeah. I believe that's in the John account uh, when, uh, when that happens. Um, I think it is. I, mean, I should have written that down, huh? Um, uh, nope, it must be the Luke account. See, I should have written that down. I want to give it to you. I want, I want you to see it. Oh, yep, Luke chapter 22, verses 47. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. Notice no words there. He didn't say, hell, rabbi, when Luke recorded. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Right? So each gospel account has a little different piece of the story which I think is a beautiful, again, a beautiful mosaic of the human condition. We can all see the same thing and have a slightly different remembrance of what happened. It, 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 it's just the way, this, the way human mind works, okay? So back in Matthew, he goes up and he says, whomever I kiss sees him, and Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. According to Luke, he says, Oh, Judas, with a kiss? Now, uh, this is, we got time. This is a planned diversion of mine if we have the time. Now, there is a piece of scripture that I have, I have, I made a bold assertion to a fellow minister this week. I said, if we only had Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, if that's the only part of scripture we had, it would be enough to present Jesus, present him as the, as the chief of all, uh, all, all things and the king uh, of redemption and that we should follow him. Okay, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are some of the uh, most saturated, image-driven pieces of Scripture. So do me a favor. Uh, hold your hand there at Matthew 26. I want you to flip back to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now, I would argue with, I would, I would present to you, I'll use the term argue. I would present to you that Psalm 1 and 2 is actually uh, the, the foundation for all the Psalms. Okay, uh, Psalm 3 through Psalm 150 all ha they're all built on the foundation of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, okay? Now, Jeremy uh, preached on Psalm 1 last week, so, um, uh, but it starts with verse 1 of Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, okay? If we were to describe one man who never, ever uh, walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the path of sinners, nor sit, sat in the seat of scoffers, who would that one man be? It would be Jesus, right? Okay? Now, uh, clearly there are, are human applications to that. But it goes on to say this uh, in Psalm 2, verse 1. It says, why are the nations in an uproar or conspiring? Yours may read a little bit different if you have a different translation. Why are the people devising a vain thing? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at the wicked. And he will speak to them in his anger. God will terrify them in his fury. And he will say, but as for me, God, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, which is what, by the way, the Jews called Mount Zion or Israel or, or, or Jerusalem. Verse 7, I will declare, I will truly tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, God has said to me. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Okay? So you have a blessed man who is now being testified to in Psalm, Psalm 2 as being the only begotten son of the Father. Okay? Now, uh-oh, we've got a problem. What is, how, how does God feel about the sinful world? Look at verse, seven, uh, verse 8. Ask of me, God says, ask of me to the son, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. And you, son, shall break the evil world with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Does that sound violent? Young. Does that sound violent? Yes. Yeah. So Jesus, as king, will shatter the world. Like with a rod of iron, he will break sinful mankind. 
Okay, well, that's not good because we're sinful mankind. How do we get out of this? Oh, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, O rulers of the world, show discernment, show wisdom. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh. Your Bible has the word Lord all in capital letters. Worship Yahweh, that's the Father God, with reverence and rejoice with trembling. What does verse 12 say in your Bible? Mine says do homage to the Son. I'll read in the New American Standard. If you have the New King James or King James, uh, what does it say in verse 12? Psalm 2, go. Ours says kiss the Son. What? Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Now, why would you kiss the Son? What's verse 12 say? All right. To kiss in the Middle East culture is to show submissiveness and humility. God says in Psalm 1 and 2, I am going to make a perfect man who does perfect things. I'm going to call him my son. I will make him the king and place him on Mount Zion, a.k.a. Jerusalem. My son, the king, over Jerusalem is going to come in and wreak havoc on this sinful and broken place. But if you want inside, if you want to be safe, you better pay homage. You better submit yourself. And he says, do what? How do you demonstrate that you have respect for the king? You kiss him. You kiss the son, verse 12, that, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For God's wrath may soon be kindled, and how blessed are those who take refuge in this Son of God, this King of Mount Zion. How blessed are those who kiss the Son. Now let's come back to Matthew 26. He says, Hail, Rabbi. And he says, Friend, do what you came for. Judas kisses him. And the Luke passage says, oh, Judas, with a kiss. Judas believed the lie of the enemy. He believed the lie of Satan. And he entered into a subversive relationship with the chief priests and the Pharisees in order to betray Jesus. And how did he betray Jesus? The same way that God said, if you will pay respect to my son, if you will kiss the son, I will bring you in. I will put you uh, uh, like a baby chick under mama chicken's wing. I will, you can take refuge in me. And what did, Jesus, what did Judas, instead, he corrupted it. He says, I'll kiss the son, but I'll do it to betray him. He believed a lie, and therefore the fruit of all of his actions became a lie. That's an incredible twist here to that, that, that bit of irony there. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have to do. And then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword. Uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke all said the same thing. One of the disciples pulled out a sword and hacked away at the chief priest's son's head or whatever, servant's head. And John was like, oh, his name was, oh, uh, the, the priest's kid was uh, Malchus. He's my bro. I know him. We went to high school together. And, oh, by the way, Peter is the one that did that. John knocked out Peter all the time. They had this, like, sibling rivalry. They're like, no, bro, I won't tell. It was definitely Peter. Uh, uh, Peter and John were always, like, jabbing at each other. If you go read Mark, which is Peter's gospel, and John, John's gospel, you will see, like, this funny little quirky sibling uh, rivalry happening. If Peter ever gets narked out, you can guarantee John's the one that, 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 that pointed him out, right? He did it. Um, so one of those who were with Jesus, Peter, reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Was that what he was aiming for? No, he's just a fisherman who's a terrible shot, right? We're asking him to do something he's not supposed to do. Uh, if you read the other gospel accounts, uh, on his walk up to the Mount of Olives, Peter walks up to Jesus and goes, Hey, uh, what are we supposed to do if they come for you? 
And Jesus says, you remember that time I sent you out as little baby missionaries and I said, don't pack a lunch, don't carry extra sandals, don't carry a staff, just go? And Peter said, I remember that. And he says, forget all that now. Grab a bag, grab a coat, and go sell your other coat and buy a sword. And Peter goes, we got two swords right here right now. And Jesus goes, all right, Peter, that's, that's enough. Uh, so we know there were two swords within the group. Simon, Peter, and I think probably the other one belonged to a guy named Simon the Zealot. Uh, zealots, zealots were very pro-Second Amendment, right? <laughs> they, uh, they uh, 100%. Mm-mm. So if, 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 if of those 11 are there, two of them have swords, we know Simon has one. I can almost promise you Simon the Zealot has the other. He's like, I got it right here. I'm strapped right now. Let's go. Um, Zealot probably would have been better at it, too. Probably a lot better at it. A lot better. But Peter hacks off this guy's ear. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus drew out a sword. And uh, then verse 52, Jesus said, put, put your sword back in its place. Sheathe your weapon. And he, he had to do that with a sigh. He's like, ugh. You can't even hack a guy's head off. It's the biggest part of his body. <laughs> Just stop it, Peter. You're embarrassing yourself, right? Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. What is is he doing? By the way, I think this this is the scene where everyone fell back. It's not recorded in Matthew, but you know where, where, in one of the other Gospels, it said they came to arrest Jesus, and when Judas said, that's Jesus, so they all fell back and fell to the ground. Y'all remember that? I think this is when it happened because Jesus, he did the ultimate high school principal thing. Whoop! He moved everybody. He's like, nope, you're on that side of the room. We're not going to start a civil war up here on Mount of Olives. I think he used some divine power. When they all fell back, I think they all fell back. You know, he's like, nope, nope, mm, mm. No, if you're here to arrest me, arrest me. And he looks at Peter and he goes, you pull that sword out one more time, they're going to kill you. Put it up. Y'all follow that logic? Okay. So, uh, in verse 53, Jesus does a little flex on him. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And, I, uh, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000 troopers. Okay? So, that's foot soldiers. You do the math. I don't do math in public. How then will the scripture be fulfilled which, which say that it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, and you do not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scripture of the prophets. And all the disciples left him and fled. Two facts real quick. Uh, Matthew says all the disciples fled and left. Not true. Two didn't. Peter, we're told, followed from a distance. That's how he got into the courtyard and was able to deny Jesus three times. They would flee. They would uh, betray, but not necessarily right there on the Mount of Olives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second was John. John went with Jesus all the way into the priest chambers. We, some of the things that, that Jesus said with the high priest, we get because John was hanging around listening. Okay, And perhaps they felt sorry for John because he was still quite a young man. They're like, oh, just, we, we just want Jesus. Maybe, maybe if we bring in John, they won't, you know, We'll be able to change his mind if he sees the error of Jesus' way. All right, do we have the, the I want to go back to this pressing and then we're going to close. This is a beautiful, beautiful image, and I want you to pay attention to it. I'll go back. That one that was there. Nope. One more. Right there. So, uh, up on the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, well, this is what would have happened. Uh, they would have taken the olive pulp, okay, and they would have put it in those baskets I've shown you, and they would have stacked the baskets. And they would pull the lever down just enough to put the rope of the weight. And then they would let the weight go. And the weight would press the olives. And the virgin olive oil would run down. They would collect it. And they would carry it to the temple. The first pressing of the olives was expressly for worship. And then they would untie the ropes. The lever would go up. And then they would tie on a second weight, so they have one weight and a two weight, and they would press it again. And the second weight would get more out of the olives. Make sense? You got more weight? And that second pull of oil, they would sell locally, and it would do uh, two things. 
Uh, it would be medicine. It would be used in medicinal purposes. It was still pure, but it wasn't the worship pool. Right? That was specifically for the temple. The second pool was for medicinal uses and for food purposes. So it provided a healing capacity and a, and a nourishing capacity. And then they would lift it up. They would pull the weights off. They'd, then they'd tie a third weight on it, and they would let it go, and it would smash down, and anything that was there, anything that could get through the gaps, uh, the old pulpiness, those of you who like orange, really pulpy orange juice, those of you who do, anybody? Anybody raise your hand? Right to heaven, I see that hand. Um, it's pulpy. It's, and you can almost eat and drink at the same time. It's very pulpy, a lot of, but guess what happens when you burn that off? What does it create a lot of? Smoke. They would use the third pool to sell to the local population, specifically the poor population, for heating and lighting lamps. Okay. First pool is worship. Second pool is healing and nourishment. Third pool is for the peasants to see. You ready? How many times did Jesus go back to the press to pray? The first time. He was in alignment and praising the Father. The third press was for your nourishment and your healing. The third press is to be the light of the world. There is no mistaking that Jesus went and prayed three times in the garden press that everyone knows has three pools. What Jesus did was provide you the place and time and the opportunity to rightly and most purely worship Jesus, to worship God the Father through him. First pool. Second pool, he is your healing. By his stripes you are healed. He even said it more plainly, I am the bread of life. He is our nourishment and our healing. And the third pool, who is Jesus for? Anyone who will light it. Anyone who will follow and Jesus provides from the top of the most pristine ivory towers all the way to the basement of the dirtiest, nastiest place you can think. And Jesus says, I'll take all of them if they will follow me. And that is the Garden of Gethsemane.